The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign there on the sign it said no trespassing but on the other side it didn't say nothing well that sign was made for you and me Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. I hope that everybody's having a great summer. Hard to believe that it's already late July. Holy smokes. But anyhow, uh, today we're doing a fun podcast. Uh, Marcus and Michael, uh, the two guys from our crew that you know very well, they've been on this podcast many times, been on many of our videos. And uh, Mike Duncan, uh, Mike has been in some films we've done. He's been a huge resource for us as we did our uh, series called Any Fins. Mike knows a lot of the conservation history of the waterways and the, and the fish species in Montana. Uh, if you haven't seen Any Fins, uh, we've got, I think, six or seven episodes out on our YouTube channel. You go watch those. They're really well done. And they all have a conservation story about fish and uh, fish ecosystems or aquatic ecosystems here in Montana. Uh, and then Mike helped us with the movie called The Dam That Never Was. That's out on our YouTube channel also. But today we want to talk about how policy works in these fish and aquatic species management scenarios. Mike recently was promoted to the position of being the uh, region three fisheries manager for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, which is one of the uh, areas that gets a ton of fishing pressure because we are known to be the, some would say we're the trout capital of the world. I don't know if that's the case, but in region three here in Southwest Montana, trout fishing is very, very important economically, culturally, uh, for a lot of reasons. So we're going to talk about a lot of that. We're going to talk about some of the issues where at times there's user conflicts. At times there's conflicts between native uh, species and non-native species. I mean, you think about in upland birds, right? We got the non-native Hungarian partridge, non-native pheasant, non-native, you know, <laughs> lots of them. Uh, and yet a lot of times we end up with, those are what we manage for because we have manipulated landscapes and that's the species that best fills that landscape compared to a native species. So we end up, I'm sure going to be covering some of that stuff, going to be talking about water quality, going to be talking about state laws, state regulation, how all of that goes into trying to manage a species. And in this case, you know, Mike is definitely heavy on the biology side. 
Um, his job is to manage biologists, work on the habitat, work on the, the health of not herds as we would in the, in the terrestrial world, but uh, work on the, the population of those fish communities. So hopefully you get a lot out of this. Um, he's going to talk about, or at least on our talking list, is about a new state plan, uh, fisheries management plan. And I think in no matter what state you live in, there are these type of management plans. And that's why we talk about them so much. That's a chance for you to be engaged and be one of those people who make a difference. Maybe it's your comment. Maybe it's your perspective. Maybe it's your idea that strikes the note with the agency or with the commission that changes maybe a little bit or maybe it changes the path forward uh, significantly. So uh, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff, and I'm sure we're going to get into some fishing talk. So anyhow, appreciate y'all being here. Uh, Mike, uh, Duncan, Marcus, and Michael, and me, we're going to get ready to talk about fishing, fish management, and fish policy. Well, folks, thanks for being here. It's another beautiful day in uh, Bozeman, Montana. I should be out fishing today. We should be doing this from a boat. Yeah, I I think round two is going to be from a boat. Why why (laughs) is it a 78-degree day, and we're going to talk fishing and fishing policy and fisheries management and how that's different than other things we talk about, like, you know, elk management and commissions and all that and we're not out there fishing it's a shame <laughs> michael's really the bugs are popping <laughs> yeah. the trout are rising they're sipping yeah. so anyhow today <laughs> with us is mike duncan mike has been a friend of ours for a long time he is the region three fisheries manager for montana fish wildlife and parks did i get that right mike you did uh-uh. yeah all right. Well, yeah. thanks for being here. Thank you. And uh, also with us today is uh, Marcus Hockett. I'm going to make up a title for him real quick. Uh, Fresh Tracks Conservation Manager. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Uh, most official official title and then we got had. Michael Parente. What? what he, fishing what, bum. Fresh Tracks Fishing fre- Bum. Fresh Tracks <laughs> Fishing Content Manager. <laughs> How's Sweet. that? I'm cool with that. Right. I'm cool with that. Because that position comes with a new boat. Yeah. Yeah, ooh. ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm cool with that. Man. It's, it's recorded. That It's official now. Uh, no, no, no. It was recorded. <laughs> yeah. That was humor. But anyhow, uh, we got a list of things we want to talk about because I think a lot of people come to Southwest Montana and they're like, wow, what an amazing place, all this great fishing. And then they go there and they see uh, entire float of uh, like a flotilla of armada of people floating down these rivers whether they're fishing or floating to to recreate or the bikini hatch yeah i just drove by it like an hour ago (laughs) what did you call it michael the bikini hatch yeah (laughs) just a bunch of people on inner tubes floating down the madison river well a lot of the rivers not just the madison but yeah i don't blame them either it's pretty fun yeah you know Oh, yeah, it's nice, relaxing yeah. when it's really hot out. Let's go float down the river. But yeah. it is insane. 
yeah. the number of people that you'll see on the river. And, and then also the, the amount of trash that gets thrown in the river for most people too is really, really disappointing. Oh, yeah. man, that'd piss me off if I, was, mm-hmm. if I see that. I'd, uh, trash. But I have yeah, to you say, should I, be. I have been one of them not throwing the trash in the river but floating down the river in an inner tube. I have been yeah. that person many oh, times. I don't, so. yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not talking too much, Mac. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I... I fish in another part of the state, so if it's wall-to-wall inner tubes and, and rafts, I don't really care here because I'd drive somewhere else to fish. So I'm out there with a 10- and 12-year-old more more than I'd like to admit. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to turn them down. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yep. Yeah, Mike's your two boys, they're 10 and 12 now? Almost 12. Yep, Charlie will be 12 in another couple of weeks. Sam just turned 10. Man. Yeah. Feel- and now... Now, then, yeah, now those floaters are paying into like the system as well. Like they, they have to pay their uh rec fee, which is new this year. Yep. Yeah. Starting in July. Like you used to just be able to use those fishing fish access sites for free. Mm-hmm. And now they have to like use a I don't know what it's called, like in some sort of they have to like pay eight dollars to mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was we we've been getting quite a few phone calls about that lately, especially with all the discussion on rec use on the Madison the last few years, there was, um, you know, some ideas going around to put a permit in place on the Madison just to better get an idea of uh, not just angler use, but those tubers and other people just out the float. Um, That didn't come into fruition, but uh, we now have that conservation license in place that you need for any state land. So FAS, mm-hmm. um, any of the wildlife management areas, state lands for anybody 12 or older, um, as well as any of the mentor hunters that are 10, 11 years old. So yeah. you can buy those online, um, you know, come in one of the offices, but you need it to use any one of those areas. Wow. Did they completely get rid of the recreational aspect? Cause I know, in past years, there was like the state lands enhancement fee that was part of hunting or trapping. And then there was the recreation license that was only a thing for the last like five or six years. And I remember being told that you had to get the, re- if you were going to shoot on state lands or just recreate that wasn't hunting or fishing, you had to have that one. I did, it sounded like there was a little bit of consolidation too, wasn't there? Yeah. So it's my understanding that if you're using them, you need that, and I've, I'm not sure about the details about how it's going to get divvied up. Some of it stays with FWP, and then a chunk of it's allocated uh, to DNRC for them to use too. Right. So, gotcha. Yeah, because yeah. there's a split between who owns the land. DNRC owns some of the land. FWP owns some of the land. So, well, that's good. All those floaters. Yeah, it's I, I, I think they ought to pay more than eight bucks, though. Yeah, it's better than nothing. Well, I mean, that, they used to be. True. I mean, like the like. For the of those of you who don't know, like kind of what we're talking about, the lower like the Madison specifically, the lower Madison, like during the summer, it's almost always too hot to fish, but it's not too hot to float. And yeah. it kind of always irked me personally that like these people are just like there's businesses that are ran there that like I'm not sure how much they're paying into it. Like like and they're doing kind of like what we do. We go and pay our film permits to film on public land. We're running a commercial enterprise, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know about, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm not sure if like the rafting companies have to pay like a, a use fee or whatever, but yeah. it kind of, it's just like, ah, like that sucks. Well, you know, at least the non-residents do have to pay $10. So oh, do they? Yeah. Oh, $10 man. versus the $8 for oh, a resident. Uh, so. As is always the case, we lay the pipe to the non-resident. 
Yeah. But so geographically, I want to explain the area we're going to talk about a little more so that as we start throwing it around, people aren't like, well, what are they, where's that? What? So you have two big river systems that you manage, Mike, that originate in Yellowstone Park. Correct. The, the Yellowstone River. Yep. That comes through the Paradise Valley. You have the Madison River. And then on top of that, you got, well, the Gallatin, would that technically be a headwatered? Some of it's headwatered yeah. in, in the northwest corner of the park. Yeah, so we kind of, yeah. I, I think you can easily summarize it, the upper Missouri above Canyon Ferry. Um, so that okay. includes the Gallatin, the Madison, uh, Big Hole, Beaverhead, Ruby. Jefferson. Um, Fabled Ditch, rivers. Yep. yep. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> very famous trout fishing rivers. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like the Wrigley Fields of... Yeah. Of trout fishing. Yeah. yeah we're, the we're in the Mecca. Yeah. Yeah. All full of non-native spotted, yeah. spotted river <laughs> spotted, carp. Yeah. There's two, a, or, there's two or three native species yeah. in there. Yeah. There's still a few around. I, I call them spotted river carp, Mike. So not, nothing against your profession. But, uh, <laughs> I, I get heckled so much about being a walleye angler that I'm like, well, okay, I got to come up with some defense to this. But anyhow, within that big geographic area, there's a lot of competing uses for these resources. We were just talking about floating. There's a lot of commercial outfitting for fly fishing. Uh, there's some demand and use by cities and municipalities for their water supply. There's irrigators. There's yeah. You start adding all these things. I don't know why you would sign up for a job <laughs> like that. You, the days you get to take your your two boys out fishing are probably going to be less and less. Uh, well, it's, you know, we, in the, the film we worked on with Jim a couple of years ago, you know, we talked a little bit at the end about finding something that I'm passionate about. And I came out to Montana and the first place I ever fished was the upper Yellowstone in the park. First place I ever caught a fish on a fly was the Gibbon. I came out and guided on the upper Gallatin. Um, my kid in the film caught his first fish on the Yellowstone. So they're, they're important rivers, you know, you know, within my family, um, and mean a lot. And so it was really, really rewarding, uh, spending that day on the river with Jim and, and picking his brain and get to visit with him. I'd, I'd never spent any time with him. And just, uh, it was, it was, it was really interesting a couple, couple weeks after that, cause I interviewed for the job that I just had, the Madison Gallatin biologist. And that visit with Jim really drove it home to where, you know, I, I want to find something um, where I can move the needle, move the needle, and, and help protect some of the resources we're we're passionate about. And the thought of spending who knows how long, the next twenty, thirty years, how long, however long I'll last, um, so my kids can fish these rivers and their yeah. kids and our friends, and um, being able to have that legacy. Um, you know. I, I'm, not not going to be a Jim Posowitz, but, uh, you know, if I can help protect what we've got, um, you know, I want to do my part. So, yeah. yeah. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Go Hunt. It's application season. And if you're like me and you want to have the best hunting season of your life, well, that all starts with getting tags during application season. So, if you want to have all that information we use right at your fingertips, go out to GoHunt.com and sign up. Promo code Randy is going to get you $50 of store credit. Put in your account when you sign up using promo code Randy.
Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks. Can't beat them. Go check them out. Well, should we give the shameless plug for the film? Absolutely. <laughs> Mike's talking about is The Dam That Never Was. Check it out on YouTube. Type in The Dam That Never Was. It should pop right up. Yeah, it should. Yeah. And if you don't, you're not our friend anymore because we spent, <laughs> I don't know, Marcus and Mike, you guys spent so much time yeah, making, was, making yeah, that film. That was like one of the coolest What's, things that I've ever worked on. It was a lot of fun to make. I'm proud of the product it turned into. Like, yeah. It, yeah, it was a lot of... What What is it about? About the... It's pretty self-explanatory. The dam that never was. On what? On the Yellowstone River. Yeah. The longest undammed river in the lower 48. Well, pretty sweet. Still is that way. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And we told yeah. we told the story about how it... How it got to be that way. And yeah. and the Jim Posowitz that Mike is referring to is the guy who worked for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, same agency Mike worked for. And uh, how he and his team of scientists and biologists uh, came up with a lot of information about why a dam on the Yellowstone would have been very consequential to every part of that river from its headwaters down to its confluence with the Missouri. So... We just hope more people go and watch it because I think it's a compelling story. Yeah. I yeah. Think. And Jim passed away two years ago, uh, and we lucked out, and we, we got filmed on the year before he passed on. But, uh, anyhow. So, so uh, for those of you who don't know Mike too well, like kind of give me a little background. Like you just got, would you say, a promotion? You got a promotion within FWP. Like, how did you start out there? What are your interests? And like, yeah, I mean, certainly a promotion on paper, responsibility. Uh, I now turn into more of a desk jockey. I lose out on a lot of the field work that because <laughs> you, you were know, a bio before. Uh, yeah, a I was the Madison Gallatin biologist, so responsible for for the fisheries outside of Yellowstone. The park still has uh, management authority there. We work on a lot of native species work within the park with them, but. Um, yeah, certainly a promotion, but so I, I originally grew up in Virginia. I came out to Montana after I finished up undergrad, uh, to work as a fishing guide on a ranch just south of Big Sky. Um, met my wife down there. She was the wrangler. We hit it off and went down to Breckenridge, did the ski bum thing for a little bit. And then, uh, 
she wanted to go back to school to be a teacher. And so I got coerced into going back to Virginia Tech for my master's and then uh, ended up back out here uh, for my doctorate working on the lower Yellowstone, which is why I got involved with uh, the project that we were just talking about. So after finishing up um, some of that work, uh, right when I was finishing up my field work, we had the oil spill on the Yellowstone just upstream of Billings in Ooh, 2011. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So that distracted me for a couple of years. Um, we were in a really good position based on the work I had just completed and another graduate student was working on. Um, we had been sampling the entire fish assemblage essentially from Laurel all the way down to the Missouri for the three years prior to the spill. So we were in a really good position to assess any potential effects. So I kind of kicked the dissertation to the side and spent a couple of years working on that and then bounced around a little bit helping FWP on some research uh, up on Fort Peck with walleye. Um, and nice. then uh, down around Dillon, uh, Matt Yeager, the biologist down there, um, needed some help with some age and growth stuff in his area. Went back east for a short teaching stint and then came back out, uh, wrapped up the, the doctorate with about two or three days to spare before I think the college was going to give me the boot. <laughs> uh, so finally took care of that. And I think it, the longest tenured graduate student um, probably at MSU uh, to date. And then uh, just struggling with the family to find somewhere where we wanted to live and work. I had some really good job opportunities and some not... I, so great places or vice versa. Like Texas or like, or uh, I don't, don't, don't want to throw, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Just some places where someone who likes to fish, ski and, and hunt um, it, life. It's a little more difficult in those areas. So we, uh, we stuck it out here. And uh, fortunately for me, the, my, previous job as the Madison Gallatin biologist, that position kind of opened up um, uh, kind of last minute opportunity and threw my name in the hat and, and locked out and got that one. Uh, and that was back in right before COVID, uh, mm. before the world ended for a couple of years. So I huh. uh, was in that position for about three years and then about two weeks ago, uh, moved into the manager position. Well, congrats on that, dude. Yeah, I'm excited. It's, it's a fun time. You know, Randy highlighted, uh, you know, we've got some of the best fisheries in the world, trout fisheries in the world. I think you can say with a, with a straight face. And uh, it's an exciting, interesting time with the amount of use we have, um, the amount of interest, some of the uh, trends we're seeing in the fisheries um, that we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, but it's, it's an exciting time, especially when you look down the road in the next three or four years to see what's coming down. Sweet. Yeah. It's been a lot. It seems like you've been doing a lot of like native trout stuff and at your, at your previous, like previous job was that yep. or not previous job, but your when yeah. you're a bio. Yeah. So it's, it's a balance between, um, you know, I, th I think folks, uh, probably aren't quite aware of, of what all these, jobs entail. Yeah. Um, you know, there's obviously the rec the recreational fisheries that pay the bills, bring in the licensed dollars, draw the attention. Um, but we've also got cutthroat and grayling um, that are in pretty rough spots. Um, Those are native. Yep. Yeah. So in the upper Missouri, um, we've got West Slope cutthroat 
and which is kind of it's interesting because we're still east of the continental divide so yeah, upper missouri yeah. west slope and then when you go <laughs> over the divide into the clark fork flathead there's still the the native uh, species cutthroat over there when you get over into the the yellowstone yellowstone cutthroat are the native subspecies over there and then we've got some glacial relic populations of Arctic grayling um, that are still holding on in the headwaters of the Missouri around the Centennial Big Hole, a couple other little pockets too. So um, this is, we're gearing up now that, that spring runoff is, is tapering off into when we do a lot of our cutthroat work. The native species don't get near enough love. They don't. Because they, yeah. they are so cool to me, but yeah. apparently not to a lot of people. I don't know. I think some. I think people care, but I think there's also a lot of people who just don't know. Yeah. Like so many tourists, like what you're just talking about, funding the, the system through this huge recreation dollars. Like I forget what the exact stats are, but how many people come to southwest Montana to trout fish. And the thing that's attracting, or maybe not attracting them, maybe it's like the whole package, like the you know, the scenery, the fishing, everything, but it's usually rainbow trout that they're fishing for, which are non-native, as Randy <laughs> said, the spotted river carp. But I don't know. They're still wild fish, though. That's a whole other it, story. Right, right. So Let's, the fact that they're wild fish is a significant thing mm-hmm. and unique thing for, for Montana. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Montana's management style is a little bit different than yep. than most, but yeah. So decades ago, Dick Vincent, my predecessor, um, a long, long time ago, uh, did some work on the Madison, where he looked at the effects of stocking hatchery reared fish on wild fish, and what he found with that study and some subsequent work was that simply dumping in more fish into a river doesn't translate into more fish necessarily that there's competing interest obviously with the wild fish and when they quit stocking the fishery actually sustained itself um you've got better looking fish um you know fish i think just inherently folks like catching wild fish um if they had the option between hatchery and wild fish um, we've come a long way. Our hatchery staff is amazing here. Um, we work with them not only on native species, but um, the broodstocks we use for rainbows and uh, a lot of our other game species. And they've been amazing and um, they're great to work with. But I think just just folks are, are excited to come catch wild fish. And so if you go to some surrounding states, they supplement pretty heavily with, with hatchery fish. And we don't stock rivers anymore in Montana. Right. We, still, we still will stock... Uh, reservoirs, town ponds, that kind of thing, um, when appropriate, but. So rivers and streams, it's no, there's no rainbows that are stocked into or or browns or brook trout or anything like that. Nope. It's just into reservoirs, isolated lakes, those types of things. Yeah. And that chain of reservoirs that you've got down around Helena on the Missouri, uh, you'll have hatchery fish run out of those that people are super excited, uh, to catch on some of those big spawning runs. So you'll occasionally see hatchery fish in the rivers, um, but yeah. we don't actually maintain our our rivers with with hatchery fish, which is kind of crazy because I feel like Montana's provided this amazing case study. Yet people, still, you know, yeah. not to bash on other states, but like it's amazing to me that so many people or so many states are still, you know, stocking rivers and streams yeah. when we've shown pretty sweet example of it can be really good if you just let wild trout do their thing yeah if you focus on the habitat maintain the habitat and 
provide what the fish need, um, yeah, you can usually get by with, uh, with, with the wild fish. Yeah, Montana has a couple unique things that maybe some other states don't have is we have reserved in-stream flows for our, our fish. Yep. Uh, what does that mean? What that means is that, and Mike would know the details more, but in a general sense, it means that as a water user, you can't just dewater the river and yeah. say, well, too bad, go, go stock some more fish. Those, those flows have to maintain at a minimum level. Gotcha. And that affects the priority of other users to, to make sure those stay intact. Yeah, so we do have what, what are called Murphy rights on a lot of the larger rivers that are the well-known trout fisheries. They're fairly junior, um, meaning that there's people with priority rights ahead of us. Um, but if things get in, in rough shape, uh, we can make calls on junior users. Um, and we've done that in recent years. Um, but I think being more proactive, a lot of our biologists, um, especially in Region 3, um, and across the state, not just us, but um, have really good relationships with an overwhelming majority of the water users on their rivers. You know, like the Big Hole, the Jefferson, have trout management plans. Uh, the users along the Beaverhead and Ruby um, have voluntary efforts in place uh, to where when things get warm, low flows, that folks are voluntarily cutting off their ditches. And they're taking a hit because they're not irrigating their hay, alfalfa, whatever it might may be. Um, but they're doing it voluntarily because most of these rivers, um, regardless of our water rights, could still be dried up 10 times over probably. Um, so by... By far and away, I think being proactive in working with, with folks to, to try to get on the same page about how and when we use water has, has been super beneficial, especially around here. But folks across the state are active, and it's, it's an uphill battle, especially you wouldn't know it this year with as warm and, or with as cool and wet as things were this spring. But um, you know, trying to get ahead of that and get creative with, with how we use water is, is one of our highest priorities from the fisheries division. Well, I'm yeah. just thankful that we've got, and I talk about this in the sense of people come to Montana and we have such amazing open space. Should we be talking about this stuff? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We should say, you know, Montana's just littered with Walmarts yeah. Yeah. and Kentucky Fried Chicken bunch stands. A bunch of parking lots. Yeah, a bunch <laughs> of drive through coffee kiosks and whatever. But uh, uh, when you come here, if you see all this amazing stuff, Mike makes reference to voluntary efforts by a lot of water users who are ranchers, farmers. We have amazing private land stewards in Montana. That's been to the benefit of all of our species, terrestrial, aquatic, the, the whole work. So uh, we have that and a little bit of, I guess, power, or authority, whatever, given to our agency to work with you, with these landowners that maybe some other states don't have and maybe they can't sustain flows. Like I think it stays like Nevada and Colorado, Utah. If there's a drop of water left, it's like, let's get that out of there. You know, if we got to get some sort of suction cup to pull that last little cup of water out of there, let's do that. Yeah. It's hard and, because so, I mean, water is such an important resource and, we can look at it from the perspective of a sportsman and an angler and someone who values of open space and just like 
you know, feel one way about it. But then, like you said, you got these farmers and ranchers who utilize it for, for their livelihoods. And it's just different aspects that are going to, you know, change how much water they value being in the river versus irrigating their fields. And it's tough because people, I mean, I don't know, there's been wars over water for (laughs) eons. And so I don't know. It's, yeah, that's an that's a very challenging yeah. thing because I feel like that's what a lot of this boils down to, right? Is this like how much water is actually in the river? Yeah, and uh, if we don't have good snowpack, if we were like drought in the last four years, and luckily some of the watersheds got a good big influx, but now, yeah. like some or yeah, like the big hole, right? We saw. And I'm sure we'll dive into that later. Maybe I'm jumping ahead, but Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Tough. And I know some of you are asking me, Randy, why Mountain Tough? Well, I'm training for the biggest hunt of my life in August of 2024. And now that I'm into this, I wish I would have done this when I was 39 instead of waiting until I'm 59. I've already started the on-ramping, and I'm progressing through the Bodyweight Foundation program, and I'm feeling so much better. I'm feeling better mentally, physically. I'm accountable to myself, and I'm pretty excited about it. So if you're interested in making an investment in your health and your hunting, go out to Mountain Tough, use promo code RANDY, and when you sign up, you get 14 days to start with. They'll add another 30 days to your free trial when you use promo code Randy. Well, They're I, not so lucky there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also timing in, in history and geography, somewhat we've been a beneficiary of that to some degree, that our rivers were not so over-allocated as, say, the Colorado River, right? We don't have a Vegas that's on the banks of our our river we don't have phoenix and tucson diverting the central arizona project out of any of our rivers we don't have a denver or colorado springs that are draining the the rivers on the front range of those states or salt lake city 
So uh, our places where our best rivers are, it wasn't until the last some guy named Robert Redford made a film. A river <laughs> runs through it. It was like the second or third year I lived here. I, it was like night and day of what it was like to what it is like. And, uh, but fortunately by then Montanans had placed enough value on these rivers. Dick Vincent had done his work about stocking wild fish. So we'd created a core of our economy that placed a lot of value on these rivers and the fish in them as they were. And so that's given our rivers and the fish a lot more voice in the competition of politics and economics than maybe a lot of other places that had the unfortunate either history or just geography that that we didn't have. So, yeah. But. Well, luckily, I mean, it's kind of we live in a democracy to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, being able to, yeah, like you say, sway public opinion, it, it you can get mad at a river runs through it for over promoting a resource. But at the same time, like right. what, what about all those people that now care about that, right. that resource? And so that's yep. like the big thing. It's like, I think sometimes people get so mad about over promoting, but it's like, well, you're also creating a, an advocacy group of people that are excited about the resource. And yeah. I don't know, it's just at the end of the day, it's kind of who, like what collectively we care about the most that's going to drive what happens in those places if we collectively just want to dewater the river so we can have cool fountains next to our casinos. <laughs> then who cares about trout? Let's go gambling. Like, <laughs> and that, that was the main reason I, I reached out um, to Michael and Marcus about joining y'all is that, you know, we I think we... We need to get better with how we engage the public. Um, we as in your agency? As this FWP, yeah. yeah. Historically, we've relied on putting on a press release, hey, we're having a season-setting meeting at the office in Bozeman, 6 o'clock Thursday. Um, look forward to see everybody there. And that doesn't work anymore. Um, folks don't have the time or for whatever reason, everybody's busy. Um, we're consuming, as you guys know, our news content in a very different manner now. And so I think we got to re we got to reevaluate how we're, we're engaging the public. And so I, you know, trying to spread the word on some of these meetings and, and how we can get more thought and feedback from the public, um, on how we're doing things. Uh, I know the folks that I work with here in the region across the state, we genuinely want to hear from folks. Um, you know, we don't have all the answers, the more people we have at the table, but, obviously makes the discussion decision making that much more difficult, but it's typically more well thought out and a better product in the end. So we want people showing up, we want people engaged. And so whether it's platforms like this, um, going out and finding people, um, reluctant to involve alcohol, but pint nights, um, <laughs> seem to be fairly popular and draw people. Um, so just finding ways to get people at the table. And, and I feel like when you're, you're sitting around a table like this, chatting with folks who might have differing opinions, you get a better perspective on where everybody's coming from. And even if you might not be able to get to the same mental space, you can at least, I think, walk away from the table more times than not agreeing to disagree respectfully and appreciate where folks are coming from. And that's really hard to do through email or when you're just not talking. And so working with everybody involved and, and 
keeping that communication going more consistently, I, I think is what we're trying to work on. Yeah. So I'm familiar with how, let's say the elk management plan, plug for the elk management plan in Montana, comments are due July 31st, but anyhow. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so we work, we spend a couple of years working on an elk management plan and that kind of guides the path forward for some set period of time. Fisheries, same kind of general thing? Yeah, so we've got a bit of a new process now. Um, it'll be every four years that we update the statewide plan. Four and years? Every four. Um, the legislature has asked us to, to get that updated every four years. What was it previously? The last one... Say it was pushing ten. So I'm not quite time. sure. Much it, yeah, much yeah. longer. Our, our current elk management plan is twenty years old. Yeah, I can't. Damn. I shouldn't. This is something I should know, but I don't know the date of the one that we're we're finishing up with. Um, but the new one will be updated every four years, and it's much more prescriptive um, in how it's laid out. And so what you'll see, and so the statewide management plan is we're hoping to be released for public comment in early August. Of 2023? Uh, yes, 2023. Okay. Coming up now, um, we're setting uh, up some public meetings, more open house to where we can just visit with folks um, in towns. We're going to have one hopefully in Butte and one in Bozeman the end of August. And then the plan will be released on our website. I know the EA and, and some of that will be on our public notice uh, page within the FWP website. EA meaning environmental yes, assessment. Yes, environmental assessment. Yep. Uh, it's going to be big. Uh, really? I've heard rumors. What? Yeah, it's it's probably going to be a thousand-ish, maybe a little bit more. Pages? pages. Yeah. And oh. so the way we've got this one laid out, it's got uh, details about all our uh, native species work, whether it's cutthroat, grayling, uh, Surgeon. It kind of references the individual conservation plans we have for those. Um, and then it rolls out uh, drainage-specific plans. So in my old position, I was responsible for the Madison and Gallatin drainages outside of the park. So in those, in those sections, it would identify, you know, what we look for for hoot owl restrictions or full closures because of temperatures or flows, uh, what we're doing with native species with cutthroat and grayling, um, uh, specific habitat projects we're working with, partnerships, whether it's with the feds or private landowners, but kind of outlining uh, the projects we're intending to pursue over the next four years to give folks a heads up of this is what your biologists are up to. Are we missing anything? Is there anything on your radar that, that we're not seeing? Um, and then once that's signed off on uh, here in the next couple months, um, we still have to go before the commission for any angling regulation changes, certain habitat projects. So the commission's still involved. Um, this just kind of gives everybody a heads up as to, to where we're headed the next couple of years. And it will make tweaks every four years um, as we move forward. So Montana has seven regions. You have six peers who are overseeing the same thing you are in the other six regions. Correct. Yep. Process works pretty much the same in every region. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we are all tasked with the kind of similar um, drainage basin area. Um, layout, you know, there's obviously much different fisheries as you move further east when you get into more walleye, 
sturgeon, paddlefish, um, different species, similar issues though. Um, you know, most of it relies, revolves around habitat, water, um, working with anglers on, on potential regs, that kind of thing. So, uh, different species, but similar issues. Hmm. So what are some of these big issues then in your region? Like that are current, I guess, well, yeah. What are some of the current, current issues? Yeah, so I, I think our data pretty clearly show that water drives the bus for our trout fisheries. When we have water, typically we see good responses in our fisheries. So if you think back to 2011, I mentioned the oil spill. The reason that that pipeline busted below the Yellowstone is because there was 100,000 CFS of water, huge spring runoff uh, flowing down the river, and we saw that across the entire state. Really good snowpack that year. And then... You know, not surprisingly, in 2012, 2013, we saw the fish that were spawned from that year show up in our sampling in really high numbers. And so most of our rivers peaked in 2012, 13, um, when that group of fish kind of recruited to our our sampling gears. Uh, But we haven't had, until this year, maybe 2018 was, I think it was 18 or 19, that was a a decent year. we haven't had any of those big years. So in some of our rivers where you don't have good flow management because of dams, like we have really good partners uh, on the Madison with Northwestern Energy who works very proactively on drought management and flows. We're always flush with water in the upper Madison. It's typically pretty cool. So we've got fairly stable um, fisheries up there. But like you mentioned in the big hole, there's not a dam holding back water when you need it in August for a fish. Um, so we've, we've, in some of those lower stretches, the Beaverhead, um, Big Hole, Ruby, Jefferson, uh, where we've got low flows most years, really high water temperatures, uh, we've seen some uh, pretty concerning downward trends in our abundances and sizes of browns and in some areas, rainbow trout. And so that's, that's the biggest issue is, is continuing to work at... Uh, water management with users in, in trying to find better better ways to keep water in rivers, when, cold water. When you say temperatures, Mike, and you'd mentioned hoot owls, that's you can fish in the morning and you can fish in the evening when the water temperature is lower. Is that yeah, so that when hoot owl, we just, uh, so this is, I lost track, we're in July, right? Middle yeah, of July. Yeah. July 18th. <laughs> So yeah. we, we have weekly uh, drought meetings where um, we'll take a look at water temperatures and flows. And in Montana, if uh, water temperatures exceed 73 degrees for three consecutive days, um, we have the ability to put on what's called a hoot owl restriction, which limits fishing to before 2 p.m. when things get really hot in the afternoon. And so we've had some studies uh, done on the Gallatin Smith rivers here in the state and some other work that's demonstrated once you start getting up in the 70s, catch and release mortality for, for trout starts to go through the roof. So that's, that's where those numbers came from. If things get really bad for <coughs> flows and temperatures. We can put on full closures. Um, but to this point, that's kind of been the exception. Um, there's and places like the big hole that have very specific uh, drought management plans. So based on flows and some other criteria, um, we might approach things a little differently there. But um, trout are cold water species. Yep. And when things get pretty toasty like they do in the Madison, you mentioned that 
this time of year, you're not seeing many people fishing the no. lower because it's pushing 80 degrees down there, which is which is rough Super on a trout. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, yep. So, and there, if I'm not mistaken, there were some new regulations on I think it was the big hole in the beaver head, maybe with like single hooks and people encouraging barbless hooks and like this year. Like, uh, I can't remember. Well, I guess we should year, probably but, ta- tell people but, what's going on on the big hole right now. Like, yeah. essentially, like they're the brown trout numbers. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but this is like from my perspective, are like at all time low or like pretty, yep. like sixty percent. They, they decline. were lower before they weren't in the system. Yeah, yeah, So, like, if you're a trout angler, you probably have heard about this in the news recently, but like. It's kind of a big deal. The big holes, again, one of those fabled rivers, and there's grayling in them that are native. And recently, there's just been like a huge die off of brown trout. It's been a slow decline. Okay. Or some might not characterize it as slow, but it, it's been a substantial decline since that peak back in 2012 or 13. Yeah. And so on the big hole beaver head, well, the lower beaver head, um, most of the Ruby, the Jefferson, um, have been declining for the last 10 years or so and at, are at or near historical lows. Um, maybe not. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I get it. We're, we're here now. <laughs> I, I, I like to poke fun yeah. at, the, at the rainbow trout and brown trout in the systems, but at the same time acknowledge that yep. it's huge for the economy. It's huge for keeping people passionate about these places. Like it's where we're at. We're not going to go back to like all cutthroat. And right. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to worry about us treating the main stem Madison or big hold for, for cutthroat recovery. Um, <laughs> they will for the foreseeable future be rainbow and brown trout fisheries. Right. But uh, yeah, so it's gotten to a, a pretty concerning um, stage where, um, you know, we've had longer periods of drought, worst drought, you know, in the eighties, yeah. the big hole dried up. The upper big hole was completely dry wow. and numbers weren't this low. Um, so it, it's concerning the, just not only for the low numbers, but getting a better handle on everything that's contributing to mortality. We know water and water temperatures drive the bus. Like I said, when we have those good conditions, we typically have fish. What we want to get a better understanding for is not only that, but how other things like disease might be influencing things. Yeah. Um, you know, in the big hole, we we occasionally see outbreaks of saprolignia, which is a fungus. It's kind of like, you know, my kids brought home a bunch of goldfish from school last year. And uh, I made the mistake of throwing them in the tank with the rest of the fish. And shortly thereafter, they got the ick. And it's that mm. white cotton, cottonwood yeah. fungus, uh, cotton-like fungus. And we see it in trout uh, around uh, spawning seasons. Um, I wouldn't call it common, but it's 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 not rare to see it. And it's usually a secondary infection. You know, they're stressed out during spawning. They're making reds. They're fighting with other fish, moving around. Um, for browns, water temperatures have been pretty warm, and so we'll, it's not unusual to see saprolignia. But the big hole occasionally will get pretty widespread outbreaks. You know, we've had a pretty couple pretty substantial uh, fish kills over on the Yellowstone with PKD, mainly whitefish. We did see some trout. Uh, we had one on the lower Madison two years ago um, in the spring. 
And so we just want to get a better feel for how disease is contributing to mortality affecting the fisheries. And so uh, we've gotten support from our new director um, who I had the opportunity to meet with a couple weeks ago. He drove down and met with myself and the biologist on the big hole and uh, asked us what we thought was going on and what we needed. And um, Dustin and some of his staff sat with us for two hours, have met with us a couple other times and have committed a, to getting us the the resources we need to start figuring this out and kind of filling those gaps of, you know, how much can we move the needle with uh, water um, when it's probably the toughest thing to control, especially in places like the big hole. But other things like angling, where we can uh, influence things with different angling regulations, how much is that actually going to affect things? So we sure. can we can manage expectations because we we don't yeah. want to. We don't want folks to think that's that's going to be the the end all. That that's what I was getting at. Or I was curious because, yeah. like, when you implement these regulations, like, how much? I mean, I get when things get so critically low that every little thing helps. Yep. But to, it seems like some of that stuff. I don't. I don't know. Like, educate me on it. What? Yeah. Like, and what? Are, what are those? What do you hope to get out of some of the regulations? I guess. And so. The biologists over there have worked the last couple of years on adaptive management plans for the Beaverhead, Ruby, and Big Hole Rivers. And those plans are set up with very objective, clear criteria for potential angling regulations that we would propose to the commission based on abundances we're seeing in our sampling data. So if things in 2012, if we had it in place, tons of fish out there, open it up to potentially increased harvest, different uh, gear types. Um, when things are really rough like they are now, uh, proposing spawning closures and catch and release. Um, because when they get really rough, uh, any little bit of additional mortality is, is taking a slice of the pie. When conditions are really good, the population might be able to compensate better for, for some of those. But we don't have a, a really good understanding of how much those adaptive plans are going to um, influence the fisheries. And so we've gotten support, like I said, from the director's office to start working with Montana State University. Um, there's the USGS group over there, the Montana Cooperative Fishery Research Unit, which is where I got my degree. My advisor still over there. We'll work with a handful of professors in the ecology department in the co-op unit to set up studies where we've got a couple graduate students out there where we're going to look at adult mortality through some tagging studies where we can actually track individual fish through time and through the use of angling uh, reports, creel surveys, our own sampling, we can start to compartmentalize mortality and figure out what's influencing things when and by how much. And then we're also going to work on a, a juvenile study that looks at uh, tributary contributions to the main stem fisheries. So um, where are those fish coming from? A lot of people presume that, you know, the big hole fish are born in the big hole. They stay there the whole life. And that's actually not the fact. Um, and a lot of rivers, not even close. Mm. And I guess... If, if I can nerd out for a minute, um, yeah. <laughs> my, I did my graduate work on the lower Yellowstone and have done some other projects uh, using a technique called otolith microchemistry, 
You guys know what an odolith is? Don't cheat. Oh, uh, I, <laughs> I, know, I, I know because you asked me one time, or okay. you told me one time about walleyes. Um, but yeah, so fish have three pairs of bones in their head called otoliths, essentially their inner ear. And it's these uh, small bones, like the fish I worked on for my dissertation were small minnows. The otolith for those fish is like a grain of salt. Trout are probably half the size of most folks' pinky nail. And so we can pull these otoliths from the fish. Unfortunately, they're inside the head, so yeah. it's lethal. Um, but we get a lot of really cool information. And so these bones grow just like a tree. So think of sectioning a tree and you can age the fish or age the tree based on the annuli. This bone does the same thing. So we get really good age information on the fish. It also grows in proportion to the fish. And so we can, through some not so fancy math, back calculate how long a fish was at each annulus and figure, look at growth through time. The really neat thing is, is this bones growing, um, the bony material, the chemical composition never changes. And so our bones are always changing depending on what I had for dinner last night, the beers I had, the, you know, the drinks we're having now, health, you know, our chemical composition of our bones is, is mostly changing through time. These bones don't as they grow and it, it stays the same but they do reflect the water chemistry where they're at. And so if you've got variability in a couple uh, metals and that we find strontium and a couple others in the, in the water, and it varies enough throughout the watershed, I can take that bone, put it in a spectrometer and measure the chemical concentrations of a couple of those metals and relate it back to the water samples I've taken and recreate the life of the fish. And so the first couple studies I, I, worked on this with was the one up at Fort Peck. They, you know, they put millions and tens of millions of juvenile walleye in Fort Peck. They have no idea how successful those fish are. And so we can take the bone from those fish, measure the chemical composition in the very center of that otolith and relate it back to the water samples I collected in the reservoir and all the tributaries, as well as the hatchery. And if the hatchery differs enough in water chemistry, I can tell you whether that fish was born in Fort Peck, the Missouri River, the mussel shell, or in the hatchery. And so it lets those folks know how successful they are and how they might be able to tweak things with uh, stocking strategies. We used it on Hebgen, and we found, you know, despite stocking 100,000 rainbows in the Hebgen Lake up by West Yellowstone uh, every year, 90% of the fish in the lake are wild. Mm. Um, the neat thing with the rivers, we can track those fish through um, their entire lives. And so we can figure out whether a fish we capture in the big hole was spawned in the big hole or whether it came from a tributary. Or we can draw a transect across that otolith and figure out, figure out whether that fish is moving in the main stem or back and forth between tributaries. So it allows us to identify important spawning and rearing habitats, potential barriers, maybe a culvert, perch culvert in the forest that's not allowing fish to access certain streams like that. So we want to get an idea where, how these main stem fisheries are supported. Wow. That's, uh, the, it, to me, that's, I, I think about how we radio collar antelope or yep. elk or whatever and you use that data based on how they move and well where did this one come from or even ear tags right oh yeah we got this grizzly bear he 
had to dispatch him. He had an ear tag, whatever. Oh, yeah, he came here from wherever, at whatever age, whatever time. So it's uh, it's neat that you can do the, the same thing with fish. doesn't sound as easy as doing it with, well, with fish. Well, it's actually quite a bit easier because we're not having to track that antelope all over the place. I just have to go catch the fish, and then I spend a lot of time in the lab listening to your podcast under a microscope preparing these otoliths so I don't have to, to chase the, these things all over hell and back. Um, so it's actually fairly easy. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at juvenile survival contributions of certain areas to get a better idea of where we should be focusing our efforts on. Yeah. And then I guess the last piece of the pie and wrap it up, um, is the fish health component. Um, just getting a better understanding of how these diseases are influencing the fisheries and, um, at a population level, you know, we're very reactive right now to how we, we deal with fish health. We, you know, we have, we go out and we look for some of the pathogens, um, but oftentimes we're, we're waiting for the public to call us with sick and dead fish. And so get a better idea of baseline levels of these pathogens and then try to, to move it up to population level effects and a little more clearly identify the environmental triggers. It, they seem to usually get tripped by um, high water temperatures or periods of stress, but then you have some curveballs like on the lower Madison when we had the fish kill down there a couple of years ago, it was in the spring and temperatures were still in the 50s. Um, so that'll kind of be the third component of, of what we're looking at on those four rivers. Yeah. Uh, and the Madison will be rolled into that. So going back to the big hole, do you guys know why it's brown trout? Because like why brown trout decline over like a like a a rainbow. Like I feel like a brown trout is a much more hardy fish. Like in Ohio, like that's the only th- that's the only trout that would survive. Yeah. We we know water's playing a part in it in these long term trends. Um, but you're right. Like when a lot of folks, me included, um, when you think of browns, you typically think they have higher temperature tolerances. Um, pretty tough fish. But in these lower reaches. Um, we're, we're seeing pretty, pretty substantial declines in the lower Madison. Um, we're, we're near historical lows down there. Things seem to have stabilized, so it's not getting worse down there. Um, just kind of a new normal, but there's some interesting life history involved with Browns. You know, they're spawning just coming out of fall when things are really rough, high water temperatures, low flows. So Mm -hmm. they're probably in rough shape going into the spawn. Um, their eggs sit in gravel for six months. You know, they spawn October, November, December, and then they won't hatch till the following spring. Um, so there's a lot of time there in the winter um, where it could influence survival of some of those eggs. You know, I, I wonder how, you know, in the middle Madison, right around Ennis above Ennis Lake, uh, most winters we've got some really bad ice gorging. Yeah. Um, and so if you think of an egg sitting in the gravel all winter getting rolled over by yeah. icebergs, um, I wonder if that's why with that microchemistry I just did on the Madison, why we're only seeing 25% of the fish in that stretch of the river come from the main stem. Mm. We get an overwhelming majority of browns from tributaries. Tribute- and I wonder oh, if that, if the ice component is is playing into that. So... I think this study will, will, especially the juvenile side of things, will highlight, um, I think, some of those issues that we've been seeing with, with browns. Again, it's, it's water. We're not exactly sure exactly how it's, it's playing out, um, but it's not just in those three rivers. We see it 
in the Madison, uh, rivers over in Region 2, over towards Missoula, um, parts of uh, uh, region, uh, the region just to the east of us over by Billings. Um, so we're, we're seeing it outside of that. It's, it's a bigger issue than just what's going on in the big hole. Um, but I think these next couple couple years we'll, we'll have a lot of answers. We've got some other studies hopefully coming down the pipeline that are going to um, contribute to that and we'll be in a much better place to, I think, start to, to put some action plans in place and hopefully right the ship. Has there been any, like, new regulations or, like, emergency re- regulations been put in, put in on the Big Hole or those Big Hole Beaverhead, uh, Ruby? Nope. And those were actually going... The, they're in that adaptive management plan. So had that been out, they would have come out on their own, not in an emergency basis. And they were already on the docket for the regulation package that was coming out in the fall. Um, but I think we had enough support um, from the public, the commission to jump on it as soon as we could and get those in place. Um, but those are the only ones at this point. Yeah, and like some of the articles I've read, I've, I've seen them highlighting anglers self-imposing their their own regulations, which is which is cool. I get it. Like you want to do like make a difference, like barbless hooks, or not. You know, making sure you're not fishing once the water gets over whatever temperature you decided is the like. I don't know what what's the temperature that a lot of people talk about. Well, six, like 70. some people are like some. It just depends on who you are. Yeah, right. It's like some people say sixty-seven. 68 69 but like i don't know i feel like me personally if it's over 70 i probably am not gonna i'm just gonna drink some beer on my boat (laughs) (laughs) um but i'm also of the thought process of like i don't touch hardly any like in relative to the overall spectrum of like fishing, like say you're on the Missouri or like you're on the Madison. Like I feel like me as an angler, even though I do it all the time, I consider myself like a decent angler. Like I don't touch half, like an eighth of the fish in like that area. Like if you just like could look into some of those holes and in some of these rivers, like there's a lot of fish in there. And like, I feel like personally, my opinion is like the angler, doesn't do too much uh that's what to like for overall trout mortality like surely we do kill some like i killed one last night by accident um by hooking in the tongue but like that hardly ever happens yeah i guess what i'm getting at is i mean and this happens in the world of wildlife too where people love to self-impose you know their own regulations whatever it is to restrict harvest to restrict like the potential you know harming of a fish or whatever and this is me talking this is my opinions no one else's but it's just to me a lot of the times these are band-aids on a much bigger uh problem and that's like and it's it's hard to just watch things happen if you can't and when you can't make big changes so you want to do something and so that's why we do we try to do something that's where we put little white reflectors on fence for sage grouse and it's like okay how many sage grouse are striking the fence it's like <laughs> okay i'm gonna pinch the barb on my hook because like i don't want to you know harass that f- or hurt that fish and like i get it but at the same time it's like we just don't have enough water yeah that's yeah. like really the and like or we don't have enough sagebrush for sage grouse it's just like or we don't we have put, enough water and there's a lot of people who need water right you and know then, like, well, and i get it and it's like there's a lot of bigger 
factors at play than just fishing and how, you know, what's going on with the aquatic ecosystem. There's people's livelihoods at stake. So I get it, but I think it's just like, sometimes we put, I think you can go too far down that rabbit hole of caring about these like little micro differences. And in the scheme of things, it's like, it's not really doing that much, but like maybe how can we convince people to like, advocate and care for like the things that actually move the needle yeah that's what i like kind of gets me more excited and i I don't know the answer like i'm not i don't know i'm not as involved in the fisheries aspect for sure yeah i think much less educated on it but it uh, is this it's this interesting to watch how much people will like there's some fly anglers out there who will just i mean would just be besides themselves like watch me throw a treble hook panther martin in some of these holes yeah. To catch a fish. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I have a higher chance of killing that fish for sure. But or, you probably, I, but I, I you probably, probably would anyway. Yeah. I would just smack it on the head <laughs> yeah, and I'd take it home and eat it. No. <laughs> but it's just like, and people would just lose their mind. Yeah. But it's like in the scheme of things, like that's not what's harming these rivers. It's other things. Like it's, there's just much bigger factors at play. Yeah. If you care about having bigger fish, that might, might actually help. Like you smack them, you know, an average size one on the head gives it, gives another fish. Yeah, it all space depends room. on, again, perspective and what you care about and what. how do you define what's a healthy fishery, I guess. But, yeah. yeah, that's a tough part. Like, you know, obviously wildlife need quality habitat to come from the east. You know, our fisheries are much more harvest-oriented, and whether it's walleye or some other warm water fisheries around here, folks in general don't harvest trout. So we, it's a lot tougher for us to manipulate a population, especially from a size standpoint, um, using angling regulations where you might be able to to influence things a little better with walleye or a bass fishery or crappie fishery back east where you can tweak uh, harvest limits. But folks in general don't keep trout, especially on rivers. Um, you know, you, you get, um, myself included, not looking down on anyone, but, uh, you know, when we get out in the winter and take the kids ice fishing, if we get some decent ice that they can skate on, um, and I can keep them occupied. They'll go out and ice fish a little bit, and we'll we'll usually bring some home then. Um, but it's it's tougher. And like you said, if they're not harvesting fish, catch and release mortality is generally pretty low. It's it's harder to to influence things um, in a fishery like that. And so that's why we rely on habitat um, when we when we can. You you only have what three main dams in your region? You got Clark Canyon. You have Oh, you got Ruby. Yeah, we got Ruby, yeah. Clark Canyon, Hebgen, Hebgen, and Ennis, Ennis Lake. Yep. Yeah. I mean, um, some of those have been around a long time. Yeah, in very different uses. So yeah. uh, Clark Canyon and Ruby are for irrigation. Yep. And so you'll have pretty low flows in the winter while they store water. And then this time of year um, when folks have their pivots and ditches running, the rivers are, are running pretty good. Um, on the Madison side... Uh, that's used for Hebgen and Hebgen's used for downstream storage for power production. Um, there's actually no power production on a Hebgen. So flooding downstream storage Ennis produces a little bit of power, but Northwestern doesn't make that much money off, off power there. So it's, it's not a high priority. Um, and because of that, uh, we almost always fill Hebgen every year. So we're almost always in really good shape for flows, water temperatures. Um, They are great partners on the lower, we have pulse flows. So right now when the lower rivers push in 80 degrees, 
they'll crank the flows out of Ennis Reservoir up to it's sometimes over 3,000 CFS. You know, this time of year, it's cubic feet per second. Um, it's down around 1,000. But just by the increased sheer volume of water, it's, it takes longer to warm up. So it, it keeps water temperatures below 80 degrees. If we didn't have those pulse flows, uh, we might not have a trout fishery down yep. there at this point. Below the dam. Below the dam. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we've, we've got great partners over there um, with Northwestern, a lot of habitat work that we... We work on with them with some funding they provide to mitigate for the dams. Um, but in general, we're pretty flush. Yeah. Seems like trout are like the only fish that like benefit from a dam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's if you're a salmon, you, you certainly don't like them. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, there's. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. I guess like rainbow brown trout. Yeah. Not like steelhead. I didn't like. Adranimous fish? I don't know. Adramus. Anadramus yeah. fish. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely don't like dams. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, very different uses. Again, um, pretty good partnerships, especially on the Madison, um, to do our best to minimize the impacts of those dams. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it was interesting a couple of years ago. Yeah. You guys came out. We had a... There was a gate failure on Hebgen um, two years ago. Uh, we actually, it was, you know, kind of the tail end of COVID. We were having our first fisheries division meeting where we get all the staff from throughout the state together. And we're sitting in a meeting and phones just start going off. Yeah. And uh, the gate shut on the dam and cut flows on the upper Madison uh, pretty much instantly. There was still water coming out, but it uh, it had uh, dried up quite a few side channels in the upper between Quake and Hebgen Lake, um, and then created some similar issues downstream of there. And so <laughs> we're I don't, I don't mean to laugh, but um, <laughs> we're sitting in the in the hotel at the meeting, and you know we couldn't not do anything. Um, there's nothing. I could do with the dam or FWP could do with the dam. Northwestern was scrambling as quick as they could to get it fixed. Uh, but we want to get over there, get boots on the ground and uh, take a look at, at things. It happened kind of at the tail end of the brown trout spawn. So we had mm -hmm. a lot of gravels, or a lot of reds in the gravel for both brown trout and whitefish, which spawn in the fall. And so we got over there the following day. Um, but the night before I was looking to round up a couple volunteers and reached out to the local TU chapter to see if they could find me <laughs> six, half a dozen people yeah, to come team up with definitely us. Definitely found that. And so I'm sitting in the hotel and Dave Ritter, who was actually on the film, the uh, damn that never was, he's now a pallet surgeon biologist out in Eastern Montana. Um, he texted and he's like, have you been on Instagram? I was like, no, why? He's like, you might want to check it out. And uh, so I get on and folks started sharing uh, that we were looking for volunteers on all social media platforms with our meeting place. And so we show up the next morning. I think I had reached out to Marcus and Michael and, and they came over and lend a hand and show up to the grocery store over in Ennis. And I there was what, two, 300 people There's there? There's a lot of people there, man. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah. Um, and coming into it, you're expecting <laughs> folks to be pretty fired up. This is probably one of the world's most popular, or yeah. at least the country's most popular trout fishery. Sure. Um, and folks that come out firing. But to their credit, I didn't, everyone, um, 
I think was super cooperative, looking to help, not looking to point fingers, get out there and, and lend a hand. And it was an amazing day. We had people all over the river, you know, had to do a little uh, quick tutorial on identifying reds. And, you know, we didn't want folks out there trampling things uh, with those eggs in the gravel. But um, it actually ended up being a, a really good day. And mm-hmm. um, I think we dodged a bullet. Uh, the forecasts were were for pretty pretty low temperatures, and we were worried about some of those exposed uh, reds freezing. Um, but that didn't happen. We stayed in the 30s, and as long as they're moist, the eggs mm-hmm. remain viable and survive. Um, and I, I think even even though we had some side channels get dewatered, a lot of those eggs uh, made it through, and Northwestern was able to, with a lot of work, um, get flows restored within a couple of days. So we dodged a bullet and it was very different circumstance than the oil spill down on the Yellowstone in 2011. Um, the party responsible for that one um, kind of kept their distance and wanted us to demonstrate um, sort of inju- some sort of injury or impact to the fishery. And uh, Northwestern, to their credit, um, came out of the gates, recognized that yeah. you know, they, they had screwed things up unintentionally, obviously. Um, and so rather than try to demonstrate some sort of an effect at a legally defensible level where we've got a lot of noise in our data, we don't have any data between the lakes. Yeah. Um, it was 2021 and it was a terrible drought year. So you're already expecting low numbers anyways, how to decouple that from what happened with the dam and so we sat down with Northwestern and some of our other partners and came up with a plan to move forward where we'll assess uh, for about five years um, at some pretty, pretty big high levels to where we, we look at our long-term sampling section down just below Quake Lake, did some electrofishing, and we'll continue to do so between the lakes, looked at juvenile fish uh, in some areas just to demonstrate that we didn't lose that whole cohort or class of fish and... Um, do some red counts just to make sure we're not missing anything big. But rather than go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, spending millions of dollars on some giant assessment, use that money to mitigate. And so Northwestern's um, put up some money to improve spawning and rearing habitat in the upper Madison. And so we actually met last week and have an engineer hired to do some work on a tributary um, just below Quake Lake that has some spawning fish up there and quite a few browns that will ultimately make their way out to the the main stem. So through some land use practices over the last century, a lot of grazing, um, habitat's in pretty rough shape. It still supports a pretty good population of browns, but I think it could be pretty pretty boomer population if if we we get things going up there. So we're going to work on some restoration up there and then... um, take a look at some projects in the main stem to where we might be able to do some work in some uh, old side channels that are no longer active that might improve the fishery. So that's kind of where we're at with that. But we dodged a bullet. And I, don't, I don't expect to see any population level effects, um, declines because of the dam failure the next couple of years, but we're going to keep an eye on things just in case. So we get into this. Really sticky part, Mike. The part uh-huh. everyone's Here been waiting about, waiting to hear. We have recreational users, and then we have commercial users. And if you were to go out on the Madison on a beautiful morning like today, 
you would see every fishing access site full of boats. You'd see the shores full of anglers. Same with the Yellowstone. Same, all, all of our wonderful rivers. And we get in these situations of conflict about which user group, the outfitting, floating guide, you know, paid fishing, uh, they have their concerns. And then these are businesses, not just that guide and that outfitter, but the shops they work out of, the hotels, the restaurants. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge part of our economy. We, we can't deny that. How, maybe it's not how do you handle it, or maybe that's the question, but there's got to be a lot of pressures that come with trying to give everybody a fair shake when it's a shared resource like that. Yeah, so I'll give you a bit of a political response. Uh, <laughs> play the politician here for a minute, but I guess just to preface this, um, we had a reorg the agency FWP did about two years ago to where our rec staff and our fishing access staff went to the parks division. And so we have rec staff who deal directly with the kind of social side of things. And so whether that's crowding or the experience of fishing or hunting and, and managing um, commercial use, the fishery staff, we deal with the biology um, and it's been amazing, um, you know, since I've been in this new role, um, working more directly with the director's office, um, the director in particular, and our fisheries chief, um, they continually ask, and our new commissioner, um, Commissioner Brooke, what's the biology say? We'll back that. Um, and so that's been great. And so just I, I, I say that to clarify my role, and so folks know, I think, who to reach out to when they have concerns about yeah. this, because your biologist has a well-defined lane to stay in as far as biology. Um, when the rec use and biology start to butt heads, we'll get involved, but if it's purely a social deal where the fishery's holding up and folks just aren't happy with the, the number of people they're seeing, yeah. that's gonna be a rec staff issue. If I start to see a shift in, you know, the size of fish or the number of fish, we have the ability to get involved at that part, at that point, but very different roles. Um, but this is nothing new <laughs> to the Madison. And again, yeah. I shouldn't laugh because <laughs> we're talking about people's livelihoods, yeah. people coming out. It's their, you know, it's their river. You know, they grew up fishing it. Yeah. They come out here to fish. But it's been going on since the 50s. When I got yeah. hired, I looked, for better or worse, my predecessors never threw anything away. So I have letters from the <laughs> 50s and 60s complaining about crowding on the Madison. Like, this isn't a new problem. It's just a really <laughs> difficult decision to make, right? Like yeah. we've allowed folks to build a business um, and, you know, communities to center yeah. themselves around this. And so it's really tough because you're dealing with folks' livelihood again. And I, again, I want to stay in my lane here and not dive too much into the right side of things. But it's a tough decision and somebody's going to get pissed off either way, yeah. um, regardless. Um, I think where we're at now, we had the work group the last couple of years um, and they put together some recommendations that that didn't come come about. And then the legislature kind of punted on it a little bit. And now we're back to where um, I think the rec 
the rec folks are going to take another stab at things to better quantify overall use because we've got a really good idea of the commercial use in general angling, but we have very little other than driving along the highway and seeing giant flotillas about the other kind of use that's going on. And so to be fair to everybody, um, we want to get a better understanding of overall use so we get a better feel for how we can, if things are going to be limited, limit, limited um, how we can allocate use. Um, and then from a biological standpoint, the Madison's a big beast. And, you know, I, I've always worried, and it'll be whoever comes behind me as the Madison Gallatin biologist to kind of lead this charge with support from, from myself and others in the region. But to really get a better idea of the thresholds of use that we would expect to see changes in the size structure or abundances. And we want to be more proactive in that. I think a lot of times, whether it's hunting, fishing, a lot of agencies across the country are very reactive. Like it's hard to get out in front of things because people aren't seeing the change. You know, it's coming, but it's hard for the public to see that. But to identify some thresholds of, when we expect to see those changes in the fishery. We might already be there. It might be coming down the line. But for me, it's identifying those to help the rec staff and others come up with a plan on how we can protect that resource and others. It's just not on the Madison. Use is going up everywhere in Montana and across the West, and especially now that folks can work remotely and bounce around a little bit easier and, and stay in touch with, with folks. And so taking a more proactive approach to identify those thresholds, and they're unique to each river, um, and figuring out how angling and other uses affect those um, so we can get ahead of it rather than, you know, telling someone, oh, well, we just blew by it and you've grown your business, you know, by 20%, we're going to need you to cut back. I'd rather give somebody a heads up based on projected use, five, 10 years down the line, we're going to need to rethink things um, rather than being super reactive. That was not a political answer, Mike. <laughs> I, I didn't, that didn't sound like a political answer to me. It was a good answer. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a, so if I have a complaint that someone's in my fishing hole, I don't call you, I call the, the rec people, the recreation yeah. people. Yeah, we're happy. I'm happy to field those calls. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there's, there's well-defined lanes now. Um, and we work closely with those folks. Um, they've helped out recently with some of the stuff going on in the big hole, meeting with anglers out there to get a feel for what's going on. Um, so we work closely with them. But if it's purely a social issue, um, that's going to come from the rec, rec side of things. Do we get to talk about native species? We got, we, we got to get a little in there. I know we're probably running long on time, but oh, no. we, we, we got to get a little. We got to no. get a little bit in. Yeah. No. So, can you tell us about some of the native species stuff that you have going on? And I guess a lead-in. I'm curious if you have a ballpark estimation of, you know, maybe even just within Region Three, like what percent of habitat of their historic habitat do native, even if you just want to go to native cutthroat, but native, you know, you got native cutthroat and grayling and. Yeah, it's pretty rough in areas. What, what percent do they occupy? Do you think? I'll 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 pat myself on the back a little bit because in the Madison we're like fifteen to seventeen percent historical, and so our overall cons conservation goal for West Slope Cutthroat in the Upper Missouri is twenty percent of historical distribution, ignoring main stem 
river miles. I right. guess we talked it's about earlier. I'm not I'm gone. not going to go Rotano and the Madison River yeah. and try to get cutthroat and grayling back in there. So we're focusing in the tributaries. And so we're shooting for 20% historical. Um, and so we're in some, like in the Gallatin, we're low single digits. And we don't have much to work with at all. Um, in the Madison, we gained a lot of free stream miles because in the park above the falls on the Gibbon, that used to be fishless. And the park service has reintroduced cutthroat. And so it bought us a lot of free stream miles, but I'm, I'm going to claim them. <laughs> <laughs> all the, all, and all this work in the Madison was done before I showed up. So, um, But we had a big reintroduction effort. One of the bigger ones that is kind of the poster child uh, was Cherry Creek on mm-hmm. the Flying D, yeah. Ted Turner's Ranch huge conservation population that was established up there. And one of the really cool benefits we're seeing from that work is in the lower Madison, where we have our long-term sampling reach that we sample in the spring, it's been 15 years or so uh, since those efforts or the initial efforts to reintroduce some uh, cutthroat wrapped up up there. Um, you know, the cutthroat have filled out all the habitat and are starting to spill out in the main stem to the point where we're catching enough to get estimates of 80 to 100 uh, cutthroat per mile in the lower Madison. And nice looking fish, 13, yeah. 14. Have you guys, yeah, I think you've mentioned some, seeing a couple. Some really nice ones in there. Yeah. And I, I get probably more calls about that than I do just about anything else. And so that's that's been super cool to see the last few years. Um, but yeah, we're, we still got a long ways to go. I think anyone within the agency right now, um, will probably outside of the Madison, not see that goal achieved in their basin. And so we're shooting for 20% in each one of those basins for a cutthroat. Um, if you went over the divide, like up in the flathead or Bitterroot, folks would, you know, be super nervous about being at 20%. They've got a lot more to work with over yeah. there as far as cutthroat. Um, they're still fairly intact in certain areas. Um, they have a bigger issue with bull trout um, on their hands over there, uh, but still a lot of work to do to, to maintain the populations they've got there. And then the other, the other big uh, uh, task is trying to maintain and, and recreate some of the grayling populations that we we have left. Um, as Marcus mentioned, there's a population left up in the big hole, um, the last remaining indigenous fluvial population in the lower 48. We've got some in the centennial that live most of the year in the lake and then run out to spawn. Um, we've introduced, Marcus came out a couple of years ago and we got genetics on some populations that were established in some mountain lakes. And uh, those efforts were to, to look at the ancestry of, of those populations to see where they came from, to see if we could best match genetics for our reintroduction efforts. So uh, we can determine whether that population was established using, using fish from the Madison or the Big Hole and then find an appropriate source to, to pair up with our efforts. And so we're taking a big swing at uh, reintroducing grayling up in some tributaries above Hebgen, um, Centennial Lake's a tough one right now. They're, that lake's super shallow, and we've identified overwinter habitat as a major limiting factor. And so finding a way to improve oxygen concentrations in the middle of winter in the middle of a wilderness issue area of a <laughs> wildlife <laughs> refuge is proving to be difficult. <laughs> um, and then working with flows on the big hole and, and non-natives. 
um, up there. And so it's been awesome. We've, we've got a lot of support from the hatchery to raise uh, fish, to fry and fingerling for reintroduction efforts, to help with egg production. And so it's, it's been a, a really super collaborative effort the last couple of years where we're putting out millions of fish and, and we'll take a stab in certain areas for three to five years, um, try to get out as many eggs or fish as we can, see if we can get something to establish and then kind of reevaluate at that point. Um, and then just over the hill, I don't want to leave the Yellowstone out of it, but uh, the biologists over there in the upper Yellowstone, they've got some projects in the shields and up in the park and just outside of the park, um, up in the Beartooth where they're working on some Yellowstone cutthroat reintroductions and um, working on getting rid of a handful of pesky brook trout and rainbows up in the headwaters of the Yellowstone just outside of the park to make sure that they don't compromise everything downstream. Well, that's what I was going to ask too. So, because a lot of these streams aren't unoccupied. They, because like what, what's living in them? It's a lot, there's non-native brook trout, there's hybrids. Like, so yep. what is the process for deciding, you know, is that stream too far gone, like with hybrids or is there a, like a kind of a way you evaluate which ones to remove the the non-native fish before reestablishing, or I guess how does that process work? Yeah, so if, if you're not familiar with cutthroat, they're closely related to rainbows. You know, rainbows are from the West Coast, um, fairly close by, but they're they're uh, closely enough related to where they can hybridize. And so that's been one of the bigger issues with with cutthroat is we've introduced rainbows. They've hybridized to the point where um, they don't have any conservation value anymore. Um, they're awesome to fish. They provide great recreational fisheries, but from a cutthroat standpoint, they're no longer a cutthroat. And we use the 90% um, genetic um, kind of threshold to identify those conservation populations. And so the way we evaluate it, we, we look at things from kind of a three-pronged approach, a demographic, um, which is sheer numbers. Um, we want a population that's big enough that's resilient to maybe a wildfire that comes through. It's, um, you don't want to put all your eggs into one or two miles of stream if you can help it. Um, you know, Spanish Creek or Cherry Creek's 20, 30 miles of stream um, can probably withstand a, a threat like that. Um, and then a genetic standpoint that we're focusing our efforts on protecting the last few unaltered populations of cutthroat we have left and make sure we do what we can to protect those. Like in the Gallatin drainage, we, we just have two left. Um, one of okay. them was established above a waterfall um, in a fishless reach uh, using populations that are no longer around anymore. And then we've got one more. Um, where we detected hybrids for the first time in about a year or two ago, and it's down to about 100 fish. So we're going to be backpacking those fish out. You guys might be wrangled into that yeah. <laughs> yeah. for your 2% days. days. Yeah. Um, cool. So we awesome. might pack those over the hill because um, at this point it's they're in a half-mile stream, so it's prohibitively expensive to protect them in place. And then you get into genetic issues with inbreeding with such a small population. So we look at it from a number standpoint, a genetic standpoint. And then uh, I think a, a piece we're getting a little bit better about and will be better about in the coming years is uh, kind of scoping these projects out with the public where 
you know, in the Madison, we need maybe two more big projects. Where do you want us to go? We need this many miles. Where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to stay out of? As long as it's got cold water, it's resilient um, to warming waters and, uh, you know, any kind of other um, factors coming down the pipeline. I don't care where they go. Um, you know, there's issues with wilderness that we have to get through. Um, but if the public wants us staying out of this brook trout stream, which, you know, we have limits of 20 brook trout, folks can harvest a lot of fish out of there and we can go over to another stream that's maybe not fished as much, doesn't provide the same recreational fishery, but still gets our conservation goals. So we're coming up, at least in my, what used to be my management area, a menu of options. Here's the streams where we know we can reestablish these populations. We need this many of these projects. Tell us where to go or where to stay out of. And I, I think we'll continue to chip away at them over the next couple of years. So um, when you're spawning these fish in hatcheries, are they like as close to genetically pure or like what's the, I guess like we talked about earlier how we don't stalk her or rivers and streams, but these are populations that don't have like a native West slope cutthroat. So there's like no point in like, I guess trying to like restore, restore the population that's there. They're just, you're like killing everything and then putting in this like genetically pure, I guess. So typically we're, we're not using hatchery fish to reestablish these populations. We have the West slope, um, brood stocks that we'll use in mountain lakes, town ponds. Um, we can produce triploids, which is a way to alter the genetics to where the fish is sterile. And if we have a recreational fishery where people are supportive of uh, maybe getting a cutthroat fishery there, but not waiting four or five years to get it reestablished, we can put these sterile cutthroat in there and don't have to worry about them um, reproducing with uh, the native uh, populations that we're concerned about. So typically what we do is we'll have, we'll pull fish from other streams, um, existing populations to reestablish these. Um, and so we'll actually either pack fish in, um, from other streams, like we'll do on, uh, the one outside of Bozeman. You know, I've, there's a big population that was reestablished, uh, over in the Ruby that's, I can't remember how many miles that one is, but um, we'll go over and pull several hundred fish from there. Um, we might spawn wild fish. So that's what, what we thought about doing in this little population outside of Bozeman is taking the last few fish, spawning them, raising those just a couple months in the hatchery and releasing them. Um, but we're, we're typically relying on um, the native wild fish. Gotcha. Can. Are you, when you're packing them up a mountain, I'm like, are you, are you, is there like an aerator in the, is like, yeah. a little, how so, big is like the, so there's a couple different options like the, in the Spanish Creek project where we're reestablishing one of the lakes with grayling and we'll, we'll use a helicopter to, to do the, the work there, fly them in, dump them in, which is how we stock most of our mountain lakes. Um, occasionally we'll use horses. Um, if it's a big, a big haul in. Um, otherwise we'll use, you know, those five gallon Gatorade coolers, strap mm -hmm. it to your back. It's got a little aerator on it, load it up with fish, put a little <laughs> ice in there and then give a little refresher every hour or so. <laughs> refresher, like assuming there's like a Creek nearby or something. Yeah. Usually you're walking up a drainage that has a, a, a Creek going yep. through it. I'm assuming. Yeah. 
So that's, that seems uh, that, hard. That's on the agenda. <laughs> yeah, I spent a couple of days packing grayling around earlier this year, and then uh, here when I get back from a little R and R with the family, um, we'll start packing some cutthroat around, and it's. It's been awesome the last few years uh, between the fish kill on the Madison and getting rid of non-natives in Spanish Creek. It'll be nice to start producing some fish instead of seeing dead and dying fish. Yeah. Yeah. So the to Marcus's advocacy for native species, if you roll back the clock 20 years ago when they started on the Cherry Creek project, there were people who said, tough luck we don't we don't care about these native species i mean there were yeah it was some of the most heated fisheries meetings i've ever went to and i i just throw that out there that the concern about native species is a recent thing there were folks like well, what do you mean? You tell me I can't use sculpin minnows on the lower Madison. You know, these are these are what you used to use for bait. You could stop at any gas station in Montana and buy frozen sculpin minnows. Well, there's some issues here as to why we're doing that. Well, I don't care. Put more fish in the river. Okay, we're going to go into Cherry Creek. We're going to depopulate, I think was the term they used, and we're going to restock with these native species. There were some really, really upset people that they just don't they don't have Marcus's concern about <laughs> native species. And so that that's a challenge. People, you know, they get used to some of the way it is. And to them, they're like, Well, what do you mean I'm gonna have to deal without these this thing I do two weekends a year? I hell with that. I, I I'm not gonna have my life disrupted just for them. So it's it's nice to see that uh, then seeing how it was on Spanish Creek, and every time I see you guys do it, it gets to be less and less controversial. I it does, and there's still there's still folks out there, especially the the ones that you know live along the stream or, or fish it pretty regularly that you might want to switch things up for. And there's folks that are just opposed to how we approach those projects or how we might encroach on wilderness values. Um, so there's there's always I think going to be issues, but we're I think we're getting better about identifying those on the front end of things and, and avoiding some of those more contentious issues when we can. There are certain circumstances where, for better or worse, we're going to have to get a helicopter in the wilderness to take care of an issue. Otherwise, you're going to lose the upper and Yellowstone cutthroat population. So, yeah. um, you know, but hopefully it's, a, you know, just a couple of years and we're out of there and, and we're done. So. Yeah, well, I think when people start catching 12-inch cutthroats in the lower Madison or in Cherry Creek, it's like, oh, uh, maybe I shouldn't have raised such a big fuss about all this. Or even if it's not them, it's new people coming there and saying, you know, this is really cool. This is great. I'm excited about this, and they become advocates for it. But uh, kudos to the fisheries division to say, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> they took a lot of arrows they from, did. from the public over that. We've worked out the kinks, and it's not seamless, um, but uh, it's about as seamless as can be, and I think we're, we're in a pretty good spot to where we're, um, we've got these projects dialed in at this point. Um, but, yeah, got to throw in a plug. I feel like we've been very heavily, and obviously for where we're at, focused on the, the cold water side of things, but if 
spent the last four nights fishing with my kid for trout. And I think I mentioned last couple of weeks ago to you, um, my oldest boy shot his first buck last year um, out at Dave's place in mm-hmm. eastern Montana and got it open morning in the youth hunt. And then uh, Dave took us out uh, chasing Sauger and Charlie got his hands on Sauger and some smallmouth for the first time and came home and couple couple for fish tacos. And first bite, he's like, what? Why do we even bother with trout? This is so much better. Like, we got to drive four hours to get to these guys, yeah. bud. But um, <laughs> yeah, we've, the warm make, water gets so much love because yeah. they're so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm creating creating an advocate for the the warm water side of things. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> warm water also for certain parts of the state funds a whole lot of the of the fishing. Yep. Um, but. What else we got on our list, guys? Yeah, you had our talking points. Did we cover them all? I think we cover most of them. Yeah, yeah. Mike, anything, Mike? I don't. I, we hit the the big work related stuff. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. You got any fun fishing trips planned? I'm so. I've never left the country. Um, actually, I take that back. I went to Quebec for an afternoon when I was 20 with a buddy from college. <laughs> we were in Maine. For an afternoon. We were in Maine backpacking and rafting, and uh, we're like, let's go to Quebec. We can get some beers over there. Um, so Katie, my wife, got me a passport last year, and we're heading to Belize next Friday. Whoa. Yeah. Nice. Um, and I, that wasn't even a plug. I don't think we even talked about that, but... Uh, yeah, so I'm heading out with the kids and wife to Belize for 10 days, uh, get a couple days of bone fishing in, um, maybe try to chase some permit and tarpon. And the kids have uh, gotten on the consumptive side of things, so they're looking forward to taking the kayak out in front of the little villa we're in and dunking bait and seeing what we can pull out of the reef to eat. Um, nice. Yeah. Sounds so fun. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of on that side of things. Yep. yep. How about hunting? You draw any tags? No. I used up all my luck early and um, a lot of folks on Hunt Talk will probably give me a hard time because I ate most of all, most all of them. Um, you Randy tagged along when I had that bison tag the year after you did in West and nothing was really moving out. Um, but no, we still waiting on antelope. Uh, Charlie's super excited about that potential, but just focusing on getting the kids out. Uh, my parents moved to town last fall. So dad's, nice. dad's itching to get out this fall. So get him and the grandkids out together. And, um, I shot my first pheasant last year, uh, Got the dog on some birds, so I'm excited to chase some birds. It was the first time I didn't punch a tag for myself uh, <laughs> last year, um, but had a blast getting some other buddies on animals. So we'll chase deer cool. and elk. Sweet. Yeah, no sheep for me. I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus, when you're when you're packing into your sheep scouting, you could carry some fish in there for yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me know go. what streams need some. Yep. Uh, <laughs> It's good training. Yeah. Just pack heavy, heavy packs up the mountain. Uh, For sure. Well, we're blessed to live in a place that is still has the level of water quality and quantity that we have. I, I kind of take it for granted. I, I shouldn't, but I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, then you start thinking about big picture stuff. You know, has water temperature changed a lot in the last 30 years? Or... 
you know, a friend who does a lot of research in uh, coastal estuaries and saltwater communities, they're measuring just very small changes in water temperatures are causing huge changes in their plant communities, the, mm-hmm. the nitrogen cycling, all that. And I'm like, oh, man, this <laughs> this could be way more complicated than just, oh, whether or not you got to pinch the barb down on your hook. And I, <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. tough with the fishery side because it's, you know, it's underwater. Most yeah. folks don't see the change. It's not like, you know, with your elk or antelope or whatever it might be running around all around you and you see the decline, it's a little harder to to connect the dots when it's under the surface. You know, we see a lot of it with bugs, you know, especially salmon flies. Um, they're very... Um, very susceptible to changes in temperature. And so we start to see those lower stretches of the rivers lose those salmon fly hatches and they're creeping upstream. And, you know, folks, folks recognize that yeah. when you're not, when your salmon flies aren't showing up, um, you start to take note. Um, so we, we see it in a lot of different aspects of the fisheries. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're going to have an elk management plan that gets updated every four years. <laughs> but. It's good to learn how this stuff works, Mike. I, you know, we've do we Michael and Marcus have done this series. Any fin goes for two seasons, and we're always scratching our head, wondering why more people aren't interested in conservation because all the these trips they've done were about the conservation of of fish and uh, aquatic ecosystems, and it's. There's so many parallels, and I think most of our audience does fish in a, in addition to hunt, but maybe they just don't want to be bothered with the fishing stuff. I don't know, but to me it's fascinating. I I look at how many days I, I spend hunting. I spend a lot of days fishing also. And uh, actually in Montana, I didn't fill an elk or a deer tag last year, so I ate more native uh, uh, non-native caught walleye <laughs> in terms of poundage than I did native elk, deer, or pronghorn in Montana. Also cost me a lot more per pound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing the family recipe to that walleye from yeah. uh, up at Fort Peck when I was up there. Yeah, Happened upon a pretty good one when I was pike fishing. Yeah. First, first cast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you liked it. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. The kids loved it. Parents loved it. Set a high bar yeah. to the point where my folks, when I try to dump fish on them, they won't cook it. They're like, "No, we're coming to your place." Yeah, <laughs> so like I, I was at an event. Uh, was it this spring? Where a guy used to have a fish, like seasoning or breading or whatever business. And I was telling him about it, and he's like, well, let's fire up a, a fish seasoning business. I'm like, hmm, like I don't have enough today. <laughs> if it's endorsed by Mike Duncan, what did you, you've had it before, Mike. Yeah, you, yeah. But you don't yeah, really care yeah, for I'm, fish. I'm so. not a big fish dude, but I yeah. definitely like that one. I'm starting to, I mean, walleyes, walleyes good. Yeah. Flavorless is what you mean. Yeah, it takes on the flavor of whatever you see. <laughs> no, it's no. good stuff. No, it's it, it, Marcus. Come on, man. <laughs> this is this is the same guy who says that meal deer wins every taste test. It it has every uh, taste test that we've done. I, I think We're that. gonna do another one of those. We're gonna have to do a blind taste test, and Randy. 
Yeah. I'm really curious to see what he can identify. Because I bet it's none of them. (laughs) (laughs) Probably right. So I'm not going to get my neck in the guillotine here by saying, like, oh, I'll know that for sure. (laughs) We should also, yeah, we could do a blind taste test with walleye and smallmouth bass. Yeah, 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 that would be cool. Some other white flaky uh, freshwater drum, put that in the mix. I think that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably sacrilege to even mention. Can Do you smoke walleye? You know, that to- I just got home from Minnesota last night and the topic came up and some guys who do it are like, it is the best smoke fish you're ever going to have. Hmm. I'm like, wow. I, I, it never entered my head. Smoking, that's what you did with suckers and sturgeons, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and pickling, well, pickled pike, you know, whatever. Well, I, that was like, you would never do anything like that with a walleye, but... I found out that some people do it. I don't. It'd be hard. I don't fish them enough to, I think, want to toss one in the smoker. Um, I finally got one last year, a smoker, that is, and um, got in the kokanee a little bit last fall and saving some fish from this winter. But it'd be hard for me to toss a walleye in the smoker. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. They're just so good. You know, yeah. it's like cutting up a backstrap to, like, put in, like, a stir-fry or something. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you know, it's, just fry it. It's really good. Yeah. Just grill the backstrap, and it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm down to two bags of walleyes left. Oh yeah. Kim reminded me of that when I came home the other day. Hey, did you know we only have two bags of walleyes left? <laughs> Which is kind of code word for uh, we might want to go fishing before you hit the road yeah, again. You're gonna be busy in another month. You gotta get on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Appreciate you offering to come over and give us an insight about how fisheries management. And- all yeah, that, thanks for having me. This is great. And, yep. and uh, have you and any of your peers in, in agencies, we always have an open mic to anybody who wants to come from an agency and talk about how they do things and how conservation works, how management works. Awesome, thank you. It's what we we live and breathe, and we want to see that done as well as possible yeah. for us and for our audience. So. Yeah, we'll take you up on that. And anybody listening... As painful as this may be, don't hesitate to give us a call. Um, yeah, bad or good. Um, if we're not hearing from folks, uh, gets me a little worried. So even if it's even if it's for the bad things, give us a holler and we can work through it. Yep. And what's the number down there? And nine nine four forty two hundred, I think, is what it was. Yeah, I think so. I that's think how, that's how often I used to call that number. I, I could be wrong with that. Now they're gonna cry. It's probably a university number. <laughs> be like, Randy never gave me gave me your number, but I, I think that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. The most. Yeah. I, I can say unequivocally with all the fishery staff, we love we love getting the phone calls and talking to folks. So. Don't hesitate to give us a give us a shout. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. And folks, if you're listening, go and watch any fins and go and watch the damn that never was. They're both they're they're all out there on our YouTube channel. So hope you'll go check them out. When the sun came shining and I was strolling, and the leaf fields waving and the dust clouds rolling, is the fog was
This land was made for you.